Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 249. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have another guest, Leanne Song. Hi, Kip. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, because this is going to be a reaction to, a dissection of, if you will, a TED Talk given by Uslam Sekik on November 6th, 2018, entitled, Why I Have Coffee with People Who Send Me Hate Mail. Now, the way that we can't relate to this, as we'd both discussed, is that neither of us has ever really received hate mail. And that's where I want to begin the conversation, not where we can't relate, but Uslem starts her talk by saying, quote, My inbox is full of hate mails and personal abuse and has been for years. And to me, as an opening line, the English major in me very much still present, I think it's really powerful. She could have chosen to say a lot of things there. And knowing a little bit about the TED process, because I've read a book on how they are coached, I'm confident that that line received a ton of thought and a ton of planning and preparation and potentially even a sort of focus group approval from a board or an editor or a coach. And I really think it was well chosen. And I think it's powerful because I don't know if anyone in a typical audience or of the 1.8 million views can appreciate what it's like to have an inbox, essentially an invitation to dialogue and updates, filled with that kind of emotion, a single tone or a single variation on a color that's so unpleasant. And what I really commend and admire about Uslam is that, as she goes on to discuss, she didn't back away from it. She dives headlong into it. The one caveat I would give is that this member of Danish parliament, who served from 2007 to 2015, did initially delete emails because she assumed that she had nothing in common with the folks sending the hate mail and that they didn't understand one another. And that might sound like a pretty basic statement to most people who would say, Kip, I'd do the same. But I'm really intrigued that that was her reason for deleting them. Not for fear, not for the realistic anxiety she might have felt when going over what I'm sure are uncomfortable subject lines and opening comments and racist or cruel remarks to someone of Turkish heritage who was born to Kurdish parents before moving to Denmark, but rather the lack of understanding. And so I think at the outset, we learn a lot of really important things about Uslem, the first of which being that I think she's really perceptive and observant. And I'd say the second being that I think her priorities are pretty straight. I think she's very emotionally grounded, especially given what she's been through, and yes, I'll acknowledge that she's giving this talk, I'm sure, after much preparation. And also, as she said, hundreds of encounters with people who send her hate mail with whom she's gotten coffee. And of course, Leanne, there's a lot to dig into there, but I'm really eager to hear your initial thoughts. Yeah, I think her engagement, final engagement with all of this hate mail is really a reflection of her readiness to engage with herself because she's already a member of parliament. She's not obviously engaging with them to get that one vote or to make one person come around to liking her. It's the sort of openness, curiosity to understanding that person's perspective and really putting up this mirror to reflect upon herself and try to see her own truth in whatever she receives from that person. And so I think that sort of willingness to engage and self-reflect is commendable and important in political leaders. This sort of openness and no sense of self-righteousness is refreshing. And earlier when you spoke, I was making it about myself, thinking I don't have an inbox full of hate mail. 
but I have felt the weight of disapproval from one of the people in my life who matters most to me, that person being my father. And in many ways, I don't know what it's like to have an inbox full of hate mail, but having that one disapproving message always sort of hanging over my head has really taken a toll on a lot of my sense of self-worth and has really affected the decisions that I make. I think twice about things and somehow I still manage to do, quote unquote, the wrong thing. Long story short, recently I engaged in this sort of conversation about my personal life with my father, finally, about personal relationships I hold in my life. In doing that, I was finally coming around to a point in my own life when I felt ready to come to terms with the kind of relationships I want to have with people and the ways in which I want to express my love and affection for people. I think I was just finally ready to articulate and explain myself to someone who I felt like didn't understand me. And so in many ways, what Oslam was doing by deleting those emails, I had been doing my whole life just by avoiding this conversation, thinking there's no way my father will ever understand. And even though it's still a work in progress, I'm confident enough in my own conviction now that I'm ready to have this conversation again and again. And even though it doesn't always go as smoothly as I hope it will, I think he's starting to understand that there are ways of communicating and expressing love that may challenge what he thinks is appropriate or proper, but still unharmful ways of doing that. And perhaps just valid ways of making someone feel loved. I appreciate not only your willingness to share all of that, but also the parallels I see between yours and Uslem's story, and perhaps not even in a way you or listeners might anticipate, because you might see yourself in Uslem's shoes of deleting or ignoring or not reacting to certain emails. But I also could see you very much in the context of those sending the hate mail in this story. Not that you're being hateful, but to borrow a phrase you used, having something to express, a truth that you didn't yet express, having someone you needed to say it to. I think a lot of us feel that way. And from what I gather in Uslem's story, the people sending her hate mail who do not ultimately cause her physical harm and with whom she comes to feel connections and similarities are people who feel unheard or ignored. And I don't mean to simplify their circumstances. Uslem explains, and I also agree, that none of what she does or what you and I are discussing, Leanne, is to approve of the behavior of sending hateful remarks. But the human place from which these behaviors and statements come, I think, are far more common than we might otherwise believe. You also remarked that she's not doing it for a vote. And I really think that's important because in our cynical world, I suspect that if politicians were to emulate her behavior when they're up for re-election or perhaps campaigning for the first time, a lot of us would be really skeptical and cynical about their motivations for doing so. And she's been covered by the press, so I don't think it's impossible to assume that one might generate goodwill. You also remarked that she's seeing her own truth. I won't expound upon it much here, but I came to the talk and even came away after watching the video, which we will, of course, link in this episode's show notes on the website, thinking of this as a very external experience. Like watching someone play a sport, I would think about how her person was acting upon and with the world around her. Of course, these people exist outside of her, 
but you made some really wonderful comments in a pre-episode recording we made about how internal this really was. And I think everything you just described in your own parental relationship reveals to me that a lot of this stuff blurs a line, to reuse that phrase, and is far less external and far more internal than we might initially believe. Now, to continue Uslam's story, the more she got involved in public debate, the more hate mail she received, and she tells one very poignant moment of her son asking her why she receives so much hate from people who don't even know her, and she remarked that these people are just stupid, and at the time, she believed that was a clever answer. She also used to believe that, quote, we are the good guys and they are the bad guys, which to me feels like a universal sentiment around the world and across time and space. I think we're very tribal creatures, and I feel like at least American history since about 2016 has made that vividly clear in ways that I think it was already coming to be known. And so she's advised by a friend of hers when she was expressing exasperation to him that she should reach out to these haters. And she remarks that it could be dangerous and she could be killed. He retorts that she's a Danish politician and so they wouldn't risk harming her. And if they did, she'd become a martyr. So, quote, it's a real win-win. Now, she does, of course, go through with it. She calls someone who had reached out the most to her, a man whose name I would pronounce Ingorf, based on Uslem's pronunciation. She calls him up and the first thing she blurts out is, Hello, my name is Uslem. You have sent me so many hate mails. You don't know me. I don't know you. I was wondering if I could come around and we can drink coffee together and talk about it. And then there's a silence. And she remarks that eventually he said, I have to ask my wife first, which threw her for a loop because in her mind, she thought the racist has a wife, but eventually he agreed. And so they met a couple of days later. She brought food to his house to establish trust. And when he opened the door, he reached out his hand to shake hers. That moment is very poignant because it sort of was the moment that dispelled a lot of her misconceptions about what someone who sends hate mail must be like, someone perhaps unlovable or uncivilized. And when he welcomed her into his home and extended his hand, that humanized the moment for her. And that's one of those moments of self-reflection that I think happened and was extremely valuable because at that moment, I don't know what she was expecting going into that situation, but that was the moment when it really hit her. This man is human too, is so much like me and my family, and yet in many ways not. And that sort of sitting down together for a shared coffee really opens up space to listen and hear one another. That's something that we can't convey through email or through press conferences. So I think that intimate one-on-one humanizing moment is extremely valuable. And in many ways, society doesn't give us a lot of time or space to connect like that. And I think that's more existentially why we all feel so isolated and lonely and marginalized more than we ever have before, I venture to argue. What I love about your phrasing there is that a lot of us certainly feel more lonely and isolated and marginalized based on recent reports and, of course, monthly updates from journalists that the epidemic of loneliness is gradually killing us and may be more of a health concern than smoking or other previous health crises. And what I really appreciate is that we may feel more lonely, but I think we clearly are more isolated from one another. 
And this idea of a more connected world, which we so frequently talk about, is connection in the sense that we're forming social bonds, potentially even deep social bonds, but not connection to the extent that we allow those social bonds to influence who we are as people. They aren't personal experiences. They are, at best, social, which I don't want to undervalue, and at worst, superficial. We're clearly disconnected from ourselves, I think. And Uslam, to me, is a beautiful paragon of being connected with oneself. And I love the points she goes on to make, that she always makes it a rule to meet at their house, to show trust, which I think is incredibly courageous, that she always brings food because it's easier to bond over food, and that she never judges during those conversations. And she's very particular in her word choice there. I don't think she's saying you can never judge people or disagree with them. I don't even think that she's looking for a utopian world in which we all believe the same thing or agree with one another. But I admire her patience in having these conversations. And, lest I get too far down a rabbit hole of complimenting her, she makes a really, really valuable point of admiring the courage on any side of conversations like these. Because there is vulnerability, potentially in owning up to your hatred, to admitting that you were wrong about someone, and that's true of either individual in these two-person dialogues. She also realized, gradually and painfully, that, quote, she had been just as judgmental of them as they had been of her. And I would reference any number of political statements made in the past few years where equivocation has been made. And of course, the public has disagreed because they do see black and white. And I appreciate that distinction. But again, word choice is invaluable here. She didn't say that she was just as hateful as they were. She had been just as judgmental of them as they had been of her. And I think that's really key. We may not solve hatred, but judgment doesn't need to play as fundamental a role in our opinions of people we've never met. I also think it's worth exploring how hateful these people might actually have been. I think it's really easy to spew venom when you don't think you'll ever see a person or that they'll ever see you. Again, I'm not excusing the behavior, which can have a whole variety of effects. But I do wonder if these people actually had hatred or, as she goes on to explore, felt like they were powerless and incapable of influencing or bringing about change. I think a lot of us in desperation do all kinds of things that we might later regret in a more stable state of mind and body. And again, it's not to excuse the behavior, but I do think a lot of us can relate to these people sending hate mail, even if our personal choices and actions aren't quite so vivid. Yeah, I want to respond to something you said about the people who send hate mail. And I also want to respond or continue your compliments for Uslam. We had talked in the pre-episode about why people send any kind of mail to famous people in general. And I think this ties back into a lot of what we talked about regarding loneliness, right? We feel lonely when we feel unseen or unheard. And so I think it takes a lot of effort to write a letter to someone who statistically was not likely to see your letter. And yet that act of writing it to some imaginary audience is sort of validating, right? You sort of feel like I put my voice out there, wrote it out on a piece of paper, I typed it up in an email, I send it out into the ethers. And in some small way, you feel heard. And then to actually have that person stand on your doorstep and say, hey, I'm here to listen. There's no act of humanity, I think, greater than that. And that is something that we lack in politics. We lack in our day-to-day social interactions, this sort of 
listening with the intent of understanding and not just waiting our turn to speak again sort of situation that ends up happening often online, right? We write these things, hit send, and we walk away sort of self-righteously and think the real value in sitting down one-on-one, where I think I want to segue into my compliment to her, is to really commend her for doing this one-on-one and not bring her whole cabinet of like-minded political leaders to sort of defend herself against this hater. It's a very personal, mirroring, reflective process of, wow, this is how I felt. That's how you felt? Oh, and to find those similarities, those moments are magic. And I wish we didn't always have to think about scale and how we do this a million times over. How do we ripple effect these little tiny interactions? Because I think that's where real change happens. And somehow we've deluded ourselves into thinking change only happens on a really large scale all at once. I really don't think that's the solution in this case. There's no quick band-aid remedy for just good old one-on-one listening. It's easy for us to get into these siloed communities. It's in many ways easier to just other the haters and say, I'm the good guy, they're the bad guy. And then to go to your group of like-minded people and feel really vindicated, validated and whatever. And I think it takes a lot of courage, as you said before, to be curious enough to question yourself and your own preconceptions and your own judgments and your own sense of identity, right? No one wants to think that they're as judgmental or prejudiced as the people they think are the bad guys. So that I think is commendable. And I don't know how we help people be more vulnerable and willing to engage in that way other than to model it ourselves, which sometimes doesn't feel like enough, but is a heck of a lot better place to start than not doing anything at all, I think. And I also have to commend her for the emotional labor that she took on in doing this because she's a busy person. And I'm sure when she's not busy in politics, she's busy with her family. And to take the time out to explain herself, which I'm sure is an exhausting thing to do, to tell her story is extremely admirable because it's something that I hear a lot of our youth (laughs) complaining about, right? This sort of I'm a member of a marginalized community and I'm tired. I'm tired of explaining my story, my struggle, the struggle of my ancestors to cis white males who will never understand. And I find that really problematic. Like I empathize with your exhaustion, but at the same time, these were the hands that you were dealt and life is not fair. But unfortunately, in this skin, People will have preconceptions and judgments unless you take on that emotional labor of explaining to them who you are. I don't see any way around that. And so in many ways, I might sound harsh or unsympathetic. I hope I don't come across as that, but I challenge these people to rally. No one's going to understand or hear your story unless you take on the emotional labor of telling it. And I've felt that way about several movements and student groups on campus when I was in college who needed a safe space. And I understand that. But at some point, you also have to move past that and be brave, be courageous, and open up your space to people who are sympathetic, curious, open to helping if you would just also extend your hand and help them understand and help them see in what ways they could be advocates. What I find interesting about your mention of emotional labor is that I agree with you. I think Uslam is doing a lot of emotional labor 
I would say not only in explaining her story, but I think in the amount of listening and trying to understand others that I perceive based on her telling of all of this. And I also see a really tragic irony in the comments that many people make to her, that when pressed to enact change, they don't see themselves as capable, as powerful, as influential at all. The irony I see there is that if they hadn't initiated this behavior, hateful, spiteful, cruel, whatever term you want to use, we wouldn't be hearing this TED Talk. Uslam would go on to be, and would continue to be, in my perception, a compassionate mother, I suspect a wonderful politician, a capable listener, all of these things would remain, but it wouldn't have been cast into the spotlight if these people hadn't taken cruel or unkind action. Now, I'm not crediting them with her courageous, kind, patient, and curious response, but I think it's so ironic that they don't see how much power they have. Now, she gave a TED Talk. There are plenty of people who've been bullied into silence or much darker decisions in their lives because of identical behavior, and I don't think we acknowledge in our more spiteful or hateful moments how powerful we really are, and I think continue to be. Until we stop being a social species, I think our silence will be loud. I think our words will be effective. Regardless of the tone that they carry, we affect other people. You talked earlier about ripples. I can't think of a single human being who doesn't affect at least someone else. And I think most of us affect many people. So I hope those individuals with whom she spoke recognize their power. I also think it's worth noting the other commonality she detected in all of them who externalized the problems they saw around them. It's this group's fault. Politicians should be the one to fix it. Leaders should be the one to fix it. Someone else should be the one to fix it. And per comments you made, Leanne, taking personal responsibility is hard, exhausting, unpleasant. And I think a lot of us see messes made by others and ask why we should clean them up. And I don't know that I have a clear answer there. I think for our social fabric, we should. But I do think Islam makes a beautiful remark later in the talk when she says, healthy democratic societies break down when we don't take personal responsibility. There's a friend of hers she described whose son was killed in a terrorist attack in Denmark, and he explicitly disavowed revenge and said that the only thing that can drive out evil from the world is kindness and that there's great courage in kindness. She encourages the audience then to follow that example. She also asks everyone in the audience to think about who they demonize. And I find that really profound because she doesn't ask us first to consider if we demonize anyone. She takes it as a given that we all do to an extent and asks us to think about that group. And in this talk, she also challenges her audience and Leanne now ours, hopefully amplified, to reach out to the people they demonize by the end of the year. 2018, of course, has since elapsed, but I think the message is still really powerful and profound she also referred to these talks as hashtag dialogue coffees, so you may be able to find that on the web. But Leanne, before I share some of my final comments, I'd love to know what you would like the audience to think about and consider, reflect upon after listening to our conversation. Well, actually, I'd like to sort of make a shameless plug for a project that I'm working on that is still sort of in its preconception phase related to this in a very direct way. I've felt this way for a long time, that what we're missing is not another app, some mindfulness app or platform for connecting people. I really think what's missing is this sort of 
one-on-one or couple-on-couple sort of in-person conversation. And I've been pursuing my curiosities these last few years going to culinary school because sharing food with people has been this sort of love language point of connection for me. And I believe it's this universal common denominator for all humans. We all have to eat. And so I think marrying that desire to bring people together in a sort of healing way over food has been the theme of exploration these last few years of my life and really helping people be vulnerable, open, expressive, and uninhibited. So I've been pursuing a lot of creative, musical, dance, improvisational interests. But bringing all that together, I have this secret wish intention that I'd like to just put out in the universe and hope that this energy comes back to me in some way. But it's always been the secret dream of mine to travel around the United States. I think there are just so many people, fascinating people that I'd want to have conversations with. Not necessarily in the big food hubs that you'd think. Like I want to hit rural Pennsylvania and Arkansas, Missouri. You know, I want to hit places that people don't typically think of. People who are often overlooked, I think, right? Lately, I've entertained the idea of a food truck, but some sort of mobile food experience where I'm learning how to make food from their families, their cultures, and just learning from one family to another, sharing those recipes and finding points of connection between people of different cultures and people who think of themselves as America's heartland and making video documentaries. I remember distinctly a Vice video about a white supremacist having dinner at a Chinese restaurant with a Chinese immigrant. And it was this moment exactly that Oslam had with Ingorf this moment of humanity and the irony of like sitting there in this Chinese restaurant and hearing this white supremacist say that Chinese immigrants brought nothing to this country and being able to point out in that restaurant, well, what do you think this is? And I'd just like to be able to have more of those moments as pure and as real and as sort of caring and compassionate as I can muster. I'd want to travel and see as much of that and understand and process and hopefully one day share as many of those stories as I can, because I think that's incredibly valuable. Well, given that, and in the spirit of what Uslem has done, would you be comfortable sharing your email address with which people could reach out to you? As I can already confirm based on analytic data that we do have listeners around the U.S., some of whom have been kind enough to reach out to me, if you feel so inclined to share. I would be honored, Kip. Thank you. My email is my full name, Lee Ann Song, L E E A N N S O N G 2015 at gmail.com. And I always encourage folks to reach out to us if they have thoughts or reactions to episodes, but I would highly encourage you to speak to Lee Ann if you're listening to this and don't know her. At the point of this recording, you and I have known each other for a little over two months, and you have quickly become a very trusted and important person in my life. But that's a very self-centered way to phrase it. Your, your own person and our lives are intersecting. But it means a lot to me that I might be able to connect you with people down the line. And to those listening, it would be to your benefit to get to know Leanne, even if only over a single meal. I'm really eager to hear what the audience thinks about Uslem's courage and if it feels at all relatable to you. Could stories like this inspire you if you're not already to take on projects like this. And lastly, where Leanne and I haven't really received 
hate mail before, I'd be really curious to know if anyone in the audience has. I have no delusions that our world is so positive and rosy that only politicians receive such unkind messages. And I'd be curious to know how you've handled it and if anyone has taken so bold an approach as our Danish inspiration. And Leanne, a fellow inspirational person that I'm fortunate enough to know in real life, thank you for your time, eloquence, and all that you've shared today. Thank you so much for having me today, Kip. I really appreciate your friendship as well. And I'm, of course, very grateful for your friendship. I also think the timing here is particularly profound. Not only that you and I have known each other for a relatively short amount of time, but at the time of this recording, tomorrow is Thanksgiving, a day that for me, despite its history, is about reflection and gratitude. And this episode will be the final episode released of 2019, even though it won't be released all that close to New Year's. And so I'm grateful that I can close out the year not only with a recording of you and I, but with this topic, which I think reflects something we could all bring with us not only into a new year, but hopefully every month, every week even, of our lives. And so on that note, for any of you who listened and had thoughts, opinions, or comments of any kind, we'd love to hear from you. Ours are only two voices, and yours are important to make this a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. You can find us on Twitter or Facebook. You can also email me and the show via strideandsaunter at gmail.com, or if you're doing the correct thing, leannesong2015 at gmail.com. And lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show as well as supporting us on Patreon, where in exchange for your support, you'll receive exclusive perks like pre-episode recordings, which Leanne and I made for this conversation. And as always, we thank you very much for listening, and from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark, signing off.